if you start anything and you are somebody that is okay persevering and going through all the bullshit and dealing and learning and iterating and testing and trying and creating feedback loops that allow you to consistently learn from your mistakes. If you start anything and you adopt all those entrepreneurial buzzwords, like I just mentioned, like mm-hmm. eventually that thing will manifest and morph into something successful. I do not believe that if you put 10 years of concerted effort and learning and iterating and trying and testing towards anything that you won't be successful or you'll have some measure of success. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been doing a podcast for four years and it's doing quite well. And I'm not, I didn't start this journey as a podcaster. And I also know people that in four years that have gone twice as far as me. But I do know that that mindset of, of perseverance and grit and determination and all those funny buzzwords mixed with that ability to learn from your mistakes can literally make anyone successful at anything. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope as always is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Hello, hello. I hope you are all well and enjoying 2023. I am finally starting to ease back into a normal routine, which is nice. And I actually wanted to share a quick update before we get to today's interview. I am hosting a webinar with strategist and speaker Kristen Turner on Saturday, January 21st at 10 a.m. PT and 1 p.m. ET on how to trust yourself with your own life. We've delved into Kristen's story on the podcast and it just resonated with so many listeners. I loved it because many of us are in a place of reflection and planning as we embark on this new year. I thought this would be the perfect topic to discuss. So if you'd like to join our conversation, a link to the tickets are in the show notes. I really hope to see you there. And one more thing, I added a link to the show notes for reviews. So if you are enjoying the podcast, just click the link and leave a review. It's super, super helpful. And I really appreciate it. All right. I am excited about today's episode. We have a fascinating guest, Scott D. Clary. And staying in line with the new year theme, I wanted to speak with someone who is motivational with great practical advice. So thankfully, Scott said yes. And Scott and I actually met through the HubSpot Podcast Network. He's an established creator and entrepreneur who is so passionate about his work and helping others succeed. Before we get to our conversation, let me tell you a bit more about Scott. He is the CEO of OmniPatch, a transdermal vitamin patch company, the host of the Success Story podcast, where he interviews inspirational people, mentors, and leaders, and the founder of a weekly business letter with over 100,000 subscribers. A career sales and marketing executive, Scott rewrites the playbook on sales, marketing, brand, and take-to-market strategy. From startups to enterprise, Scott's worked with execs and entrepreneurs to 10x their businesses. He sold and marketed to the most iconic Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 brands throughout his career. His work has been featured in over 100 news sites and publications. He speaks globally at industry conferences and has had articles and insights featured in Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Hacker Moon, The Startup, and others. So he has certainly done some really cool things, and he also taught me some things and even challenged my thinking on some things, including burnout. Can't wait for you all to hear this conversation, so let's get to it. 
All right. I am so excited to have Scott D. Clary here on No Straight Path. Thank you so much for joining me. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I love I love your podcast. I love the vibe of the podcast. And you have, can I say you have the best podcasting voice I think I've ever heard. I was going to tell you before we started recording, but I'm just <laughs> listening to you. And it sounds like all the the murder mystery podcasts that my girlfriend listens to. Uh-huh. Like you have this like this podcasting voice. So you're going to kill it because you have the voice. So it's good. I, I, I can already listen to you like in my head and just think this sounds like a really big podcaster. That's like the kind of voice you have. So it's good. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I got my voice, I think, from my mom. So thanks, mom. <laughs> and I've heard that before. So that makes me so happy, especially growing up because I hated my voice. But, you know, it's – you never know. You never know the gifts that you have. Everyone hates yeah. their voice, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll use my voice for other things outside of podcasting, too. We shall see. I cannot sing, though. I'll say that. That's you one thing do, my family uh... – you could do uh, voice work for TV, movies, little cartoons. Yeah, yeah in LA, you know, another career know. path, no straight path. We'll see what's next. <laughs> but I want to get into your story. I'm so curious. We met at a conference with HubSpot, had the best time. You have so much passion. I just like love your passion for what you do. And it's so magnetic. When we were speaking, I was like, oh, wow. This guy is interesting. I want to know more about your story. And so I would love to know about your childhood. If we can start with your childhood, how did you grow up, the value system, the characteristics and attributes that your family members would use to describe you? Because I want to see if we can connect the dots to see how little Scott is showing up in millennial 30-year-old or 32-year-old Scott. I think we're around the same age. Yeah, yeah, so still very young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's let's do this. It's gonna be a therapy session. So let's go <laughs> into it. So growing up, I don't pretend to come from like a very difficult childhood. I had two incredible parents. My mom worked when I was very young. She worked always in universities, always in science. She managed labs and up until now she actually still does. So she always worked and then she took time off when she had me and she took several years off. And my dad always worked in government. So My whole family, funny enough, is all on the dad's and grandparents and uncle's side, all RCMP, all like all police. My dad moved from RCMP to CSIS, which if you don't know, it's like Canadian FBI, basically. Oh, okay. Um, I was just about to ask. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because we have a lot of Canadians on the podcast too. So yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm fully Canadian. So, you know, born in Toronto, raised in Ottawa, if anybody knows where that is, Ottawa is like the DC of Canada, just the capital, and then spent most of my professional career in Toronto. But yeah, family was in terms of risk, zero, there was zero risk in any job, (laughs) any one of my family took. So it was very much like, you know, government family, uh, again, like police force, a lot of my grandpa, uncle, all police. And then that also leads me to the question of like, how did I end up where I am doing what I'm doing, not only working on my own, you know, entrepreneurial stuff, but working in tech and startups. And we can figure that out because I haven't really solved that problem yet. (laughs) But yeah, so great family, very well off, very stable, very risk adverse. We're talking, you know, jobs that give you the pensions, you know, quite literally till the day you die. And the values that I was brought up with, that I think I encapsulate now and this, I guess it'll, you know, it's, it's a lot about being a good person, being empathetic, you know, going the extra mile, being a very caring, self-aware, sensitive, just general good person. Not a lot of really religion growing up, but a lot of the, 
a lot of the, you know, the quote unquote good traits and just being a good person and being a good neighbor to the people around you. That's definitely what my mother, like my mother taught over to me. She always focused on, you know, hard work and not just being a good person, but upskilling yourself so you could serve in whatever it is you're doing to the best of your ability in school and work and whatever it was. And everyone who's ever met me, <laughs> I guess this is like not my words, but everyone else says, you know, my mom raised me right. And I've turned out okay so far, I think. But <laughs> even, you know, in the type of relationships that I, I build, like I'm, I try and build relationships with people that are just good people doing good things and whatever it is they are. And that's mm -hmm. sort of who I gravitate towards. And so far, it's served me pretty well. I'm always somebody who tries to go above and beyond and like literally anything I do. And I don't like to sound pretentious at all. But this is something that my mom always did. And it's something that I'm trying to put it into the world. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to speak about my parents like in the past tense, like they're both still alive and well. But mm -hmm. this is sort of the environment that they they brought me up in. It was it was a great environment. And and I think that's what allowed me to to be who I am today. And I hopefully, you know, if you know me, I think that's a decent person, but I'm trying my best and trying to yeah. live what they taught me. So Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. It sounds like, yeah, wonderful upbringing, really strong family values there. I'm curious about the characteristics and attributes that your family would use to describe you when you were a little kid. Were you the risk taker? Were you quiet? Mm. Were you shy? Were you an athlete? Were you, did you have a little lemonade stand? Were you already an entrepreneur? <laughs> I was never an entrepreneur. I was not entrepreneurial at all. And there's seasons mm. to everyone's life, right? Yeah. So I would say up until high school, I was nervous. I was shy. I was a definitely a nerd, like a huge nerd. And actually that hasn't left. I'm still a huge nerd. I just ended up <laughs> going to the gym a bit more and playing a few more sports, but I'm still, I'm, you know, I've always been like, yeah, nervous, shy, reserved, like scared of doing anything in public, scared of public speaking, like all those wow. traits, right? Never the outgoing, like the alpha, whatever it is, personality. That was not me. But I always focus on the things that make me uncomfortable. And I don't know at what point in my life that I wanted to do this, but I lean into them because mm -hmm. I found that leaning into things that make me uncomfortable on the other side is generally a much better life. And that includes doubling down on being more athletic, playing more sports, putting myself out there, being more charismatic, being more extroverted. So I would say before high school, I was that shy, nerdy kid. During high school, definitely put myself out there and tried to work on that extroverted gene. And I think that actually that forcing myself to expand my social circle, expand like how I act in public and just being a more outgoing individual, that coupled with that introversion that I had growing up, that's actually mm -hmm. allowed me to be wildly successful in my career. It's the ability to go out and do the things and be loud and broadcast and network and be charismatic, coupled with the self-reflection and the careful thought and the planning and the mm -hmm. sometimes overthinking literally everything that I do. So it's mm -hmm. the dichotomy of those two things. And it's really just the two seasons of my life that have allowed me to have both of those personalities that I think have made me, you know, that extroverted introvert that I'm, yeah. I, I consider myself right now for sure. The way that my family viewed me in pre-high school, high school, university, college for all my American friends that don't call it university, <laughs> that's one perception. But then there's like perception of me now, which is <laughs> just like, because you keep, you have to remember, I'm a complete 180 from basically anybody in my immediate family, right? Mm -hmm. So perception of me now hasn't changed in terms of 
you know, who he is as a person. But in terms of what I do, absolutely batshit crazy, Scott. Just, I hope you're doing okay, right? <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a lot of people that branch out and don't come from entrepreneurial families. A lot of it is parents trying to understand what the hell they're doing with their life. So yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it now. That's a common theme on the podcast too, since we are looking at a lot of non-traditional paths and then trying to couple that with coming from a family that doesn't necessarily understand it or even a peer group. Has that been a challenge for you? How have you navigated that? You know, it's funny. I've always respected my parents immensely and I've always loved them, but I've never cared about what they thought about me. I've never mm. cared about what anyone's thought about me. I don't know when that happened but I've just not cared because I've realized that if I, and I think this stems from if I'm going to push myself to do something and be the best at the 0.01%, you know, be in the 0.01% of whatever it is I'm doing, I can't ever expect everyone to understand me. If I want to make X amount of dollars, if I want to be a CEO of a fortune 500 company, which at one point I actually wanted to do, if I want to build one of the largest podcasts in the world and you operate at that, not just the top 1% in your field, but the 0.0001% of your field, like I'm well aware that there's a reason why there's so few people that operate at that level. And very early on, I just didn't care what people thought about me. And I think that actually that caused me to like rebel a little bit. And that probably is what pushed me away from just, I say in air quotes, just pursuing a government job because I wanted to push myself a little bit farther. And I entered into this flywheel, this career flywheel that propelled me to where I am today, basically due to my jumping into shit that honestly, was just outside my comfort zone and then mastering it and then pushing to the next level. But yeah, I just, I never wanted to let someone else's view of who I was dictate what I was able to do. That was something that, you know, you say like, what do you, what do your parents think? Well, they're, they're proud, but I've never really cared enough about their opinion regarding my career decisions to mm -hmm. let that impact or, or let that, you know, change my judgment on something. Yeah. Wow. That's so fascinating. Do you happen to know what your Myers-Briggs letters are? Oh, I'm if, just so if you, if you let me open up <laughs> Gmail, I can tell you and I can yeah, find it. There's certain personality types where that line of thinking is just more natural because it's very challenging as humans to not mm -hmm. care about what other people think, especially our parents, especially if, you know, you love and respect your parents. Mm -hmm. And so Immensely. I'm always curious about that because I'm an ESFJ and we care a lot. And I asked because my husband, he's an INTP, we're the opposite on every letter. And he's very much more aligned with you. Respect them. That's so funny. Great. But I'm going to do me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How? It's, it's Oh, oh my God. I have to find. Okay. So okay. we'll keep talking and I can, I'll yeah. see if I can remember my login yes, <laughs> to 16personalities.com. No <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, love that. I love that. I love that. Scott found his Myers-Briggs and it is ESTJ, executive personality. The ESTJ is someone who is extroverted, observant, thinking, and judging. They possess great fortitude, empathetically following their own judgment. They often serve as a stabilizing force amongst others, able to offer solid direction amid adversity. I can certainly see how this personality type is fitting for an entrepreneur, and I was curious about his transition to entrepreneurship. I wanted to know more about his journey. Let's get to 
the pivotal moment when it comes to your entrepreneurial career? Is there Mm -hmm. one, is there a story that you like to point to of what propelled you into the work that you're doing now? Yeah. So I would say the pivotal moment, so worked in tech for the majority of my early career, I guess technically worked in tech for the majority of my late stage career, but that's besides the point. Worked in a small tech company, it was telco, and they were acquired by private equity. And Mm -hmm. I saw that transaction and I realized that, shit, this guy built something from scratch, founder, owned and operated company, scaled it to certain revenue size, sold it for a private amount, but it was a very good exit. And I'm like, man, if I could have had a piece of that. And I started to understand the whole process of acquisition. And it wasn't even a VC play. It was a private equity play, cash flowing, profitable business, you know, significant historical P&L. And I was like, okay, so how do I either build something myself that I can eventually sell? Because that's the first, that transaction was the first ever hint of business sales mergers, acquisition, anything to do with selling a business. You realize that my past was government and then I worked in private tech. My parents were government, worked in private tech, but private tech like at the Fortune 1000 level. So there's no talk of M&A where mm-hmm. I was, right? Like you just mm-hmm. go for a company, you, you're employed and that's pretty much it. And you work there. People worked in the company that I originally started working in for like 30, 40 years. That was like the de facto because it's just a huge, enormous company. But that yeah. transaction was like, oh shit, that's an opportunity. So I was like, how do I leverage that? How do I start to think myself? And I was like, well, I don't, I'm not really passionate about a particular product or service, but I had a good network at that time. And I understood that if I could offer services, so, you know, I was heading up sales and marketing. If I could offer that service to startups, you could get in at an early stage and then you could get some equity and then you could grow them up and then they could, you know, be successful and then they could be acquired and you could sort of bolt on your specialty and you could leverage that for a percentage of like a nice exit. And that's really what got me into startups. And then through that, I started doing some consulting work, then ended up working with some partners, worked with like a ton of startups. We partnered up with Creative Destruction Labs, which is a startup incubator out of the University of Toronto, very much like a Y Combat just up in Canada. And we worked with, I'm sure, 50, 60 plus different startups to various degrees. But a lot of that work was like fractional CXO work. So CRO work, CMO work, helping companies like pre-revenue, find product market fit, find their first 50 customers. So very, very disruptive startup. But it wasn't like I had money to invest. So I was investing my time and sweat equity, which was like incredibly tiring and stressful. And <laughs> like, even if you invest your money in startups, you know that a lot of them have failed. Like there's a really high failure rate. So imagine mm-hmm. that's not just your money working for you. Imagine that's you working for you. So you only have so many hours in a day. So it's very difficult to, to be a successful consultant. And I never really mastered the art of consulting, especially for early stage startups. I mean, it was my first time ever doing it. So what I did do is I doubled down on one particular startup. And this is over a span of several years. I doubled down on one. I was CRO there, grew that company. That was a successful exit. But yeah, so we sort of dovetailed from the original question. But that exit event was what actually got me into the world of owning a piece of something. How do I do that? Since this pivotal moment, Scott has gone on to build a massive brand. I love his inspirational content and enjoy reading his newsletter. I was so curious about how he did it. Fortunately, Scott has a great sense of humor and didn't take offense when I told him that he was one of those guys who gives off bro vibes and can post anything like, work hard, it takes consistency, and then he gets 10,000 likes. 
And I was thinking, who is this man? How does he have this level of influence? I know he provides a lot of great substantive content because I've read it, but I feel like he could say anything and get all of the likes. What's the secret? The secret is is doing it for a significant period of time and finding systems and processes that allow you to create content at scale. I mean, if you do anything at scale for a certain period of time, you will build a community. And I would say the bar is very low for community building, content creation, even podcasting. I mean, if you stuck with anything for four or five years, like you start to be known as a player in the space. And I also find that, so my content now, my content has evolved over time. So my content originally was very tactical. It was it was highly tactical. And that actually adopted a very niche market of people that loved sales and marketing tactical stuff. And then you start to realize that there is a finite group that that actually resonates with. And people do generally need, people look to other individuals to lift them up, to give them some sort of inspiration. And now my, my content edges between like personal upskilling and tactical business strategy. And I feel like that's like, I like that sweet spot. I'm not saying it's a perfect sweet spot, but it, it reaches and helps the largest target audience because you can bring somebody in, you can grow a larger brand, a less meaningful one, but a larger brand with some generic stuff, not like overly generic, but stuff that is maybe less, okay, I'm not going to lay out an entire, I don't know, SEO strategy and backlinking strategy on LinkedIn, for example. I'm going to do something that's maybe a little bit more like airy or like high level, right? And that can attract people because it's very shareable, it's very motivational, but then in my opinion, at least, once you attract those people, you, you have the responsibility to teach them something. And that is the goal of my personal brand. I don't have a product or service that I sell at this point, maybe in the future I will, but the goal of my original personal brand was to teach people how to upskill so that they could perform at a higher level. And it could be an entrepreneur, it could be an individual in a company, but upskilling is not just understanding the tactics of a particular strategy or how to you know, multi-thread a B2B enterprise sale, or again, like hiring the perfect operating part, like, or even investing in your first deal. Like, there's so many different tactics, but mm-hmm. ultimately a true successful person has all the tactics and knows how to find them and knows how to weed through all the BS online, but also understands how to operate. That means the way and the lenses which they view problem solving, the energy levels they maintain throughout the day. All these different things are quite important. So I feel like a truly successful person needs to be taught all of this. So that was the goal of podcasts and all the stuff that I put out. But to have the biggest impact, you have to be able to attract the largest group of people. And doing that is actually one of the hardest things to do because it's not as niche down. But for me, who didn't have a product or service to sell day one, that was the most fun because I got the most eyeballs looking at me and I know that I can serve the most people when I choose to maybe, I don't know what it is, if it's build a community and offer a product or a service or sell something to them. But the point is, it's like, I wanted that reach. I wanted that reach. And I know that I would follow up with substance because I know what I know. And I know what the people on my podcast know. And I know what goes out in my newsletter. But I know that day one, I just wanted to get as many eyeballs as possible. And then I'll serve those people for, you know, as long as they'll, as long as they'll put up with me and listen to me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The motivational ones work for me every time. It's just, I feel seen in so many of your posts and your newsletter. I love your podcast and you are interviewing some of the brightest minds with really interesting lessons learned. Can you, because you are clearly extremely successful, you've done amazing work, but 
I'm sure the journey hasn't been easy. I'm sure there's been challenges, pain points, setbacks, things along the way. Is there one in particular that stands out and perhaps we can unpack some of the lessons learned from that? Mm -hmm. Let me think. I mean, there's a million in one, but what's a very useful one? (laughs) I think that one of the the failures, and I don't consider anything a true failure. I mean, there's a whole nuance to how you internalize failures and whether or not you use them to act as a as a this like weight that stops you from trying anything else, or you use them as a you know an insightful catalyst to, to allow you to do things that you never thought possible because you feel like you've learned all these lessons. But one of the things that I failed at was consulting businesses. I mean, there was a mixture of things, so in between first company that was acquired and, and second company that was acquired, it was a lot of consulting work, just a ton of consulting work. And of course, you know, you have some success in business. And this, I think this is actually a very common thread with people that try and start a side hustle and a side hustle immediately is like, how do I consult or how do I take all this professional experience that I had that I've been, you know, doing for companies for years, and how do I bundle it up and sell it? And Hopefully that's a valuable lesson for the audience, but I think that you really have to check your ego because you feel like you've been doing something for so long that you, you know, you feel like you're like God's gift to business and you're going to absolutely kill it. And these little startups that don't know anything like should be dying to work with you. And, and the reality is, is that there's so much nuance to going in. And this is the one thing that I learned from it because I say it's a failure because we did good work, but I mean, I moved away from it because it was stressful and time consuming and between the not seeing the results and the deals that we landed and the fact that the retainers were not properly, you know, priced out and the fact that I moved away from it and just went to work for a company as a CRO again. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of giving up and moving on to something new and maybe a more strategic role that I feel like I could do a little bit more damage in a good way and maybe have a, a, a larger possible exit. But I really felt like the wheels were spinning and we weren't making momentum. And that's really what I look for in anything I do, momentum. And if we're making momentum, then we're succeeding. If we're not, then it's not necessarily a success. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of lessons learned. And it was like, several years of spinning wheels and being tired and not really getting where we wanted to go mm-hmm. and not really being able to scale this like consulting work. And I think that I learned a lot of things. I think I learned a lot of tactical things about how to consult and how to be fractional and how to allocate time and how to value your own time and how to price yourself out and how to, you know, even find the right partners to work with and find the different personality types and partners as a as, a, as co-founders of a consulting firm. How do you balance workload and what is everyone's strengths and weaknesses? And when you have all these high performers just literally come from working in companies and just slot them into a room that's not really making a great startup team. That's just getting a whole bunch of people and slotting them into a room. So I think that if you do want to branch out on your own, and I preach this quite a bit, there's ways to do this without going all in to sort of test. You test Mm -hmm. the people you work with. You test the product that you're taking to the market. You test everything about being an entrepreneur because you don't know what you don't know. And especially when you move from working a job to building something and building something again, it could be consulting services. It could be building an actual startup because you're a developer. It doesn't really matter. You're building something. And there's a massive shift in the amount of responsibilities you have to take on because when you build something, you don't think about it, but you are responsible for, you know, (laughs) everything from the hiring to the firing, to the onboarding, to the finance, to the sales, to the marketing, to the, you know, setting up your website domain. And if it goes down, you have to go check your DNS settings and like everything, everything and everything and everything is your responsibility. So those are probably some of the most useful 
but also hardest lessons because while you're going through those lessons and you're trying to build something and the revenue is not increasing and the momentum's not there, it's just like very stressful and not fun. But this is like mm-hmm. literally the, the founder's journey. It doesn't really matter what you're building. Every founder goes through this. So I literally went from company to consulting to hating my life consulting to company. But while I was in company, then I leveraged the lessons that I learned in a startup and then built a podcast and built a personal brand. And that personal brand is actually a startup in and of itself. So then I took all those lessons and I leveraged all my experiences, not failing, but like not really doing quite well as a consultant. And then I leveraged that and took all that stuff and just built a kick-ass personal brand while still executing as a CRO in in an early stage tech startup. So there's some lessons there. That was tough. But that, again, talk about transformative parts of life. Any failure in a startup is going to be massively transformative. Any success in a startup, any any startup is going to be massively transformative. Any experience at all, especially when you're like pre-revenue and you're building that shit up. It is just, it changes your life because you see all the nuances to business. You like the, the curtains lifted, you know, you see everything and it sets you up to be not only an exceptional employee, but mm-hmm. an exceptional entrepreneur in anything you do. Yeah, I love that. Wow. I am curious about your personal brand because it's huge. It's doing amazing. It's super inspirational. And it seems to be this new, the creator economy has mm-hmm. really blown up recently. And so a mm-hmm. lot of people are entering the creator economy and they're trying to understand how they can monetize their personal brand. Do you have tips for that? So, yes. I mean, I didn't on purpose want to monetize everything from my personal brand day one. So I wanted to build an audience and I didn't want to gate content, which is very important because a lot of people, they try and sell something before they even have a product. And I think that's the biggest detriment to building a personal brand. I think a true personal brand, I think that you put content out that resonates with you, that resonates with your audience. And then when you found that product market fit for who you are, which is very hard to find, after you find that product market fit, then you can decide different ways to monetize it and productize it. For me, I've only focused on building a large audience because I wanted to build the biggest possible audience. And then I knew that that would be useful for me later on in my life, in another season of my life when I'm outside of startups and, you know, I'm working in a company now and I'm building that out. But when that's done, I'll always have this personal brand. So, Hmm. and by the way, the larger the audience is, the more opportunity you get regardless, even if you don't want it. So advertisers approach, you can monetize the audience, you can monetize because advertisers will want to get in front of the people that follow you. But if you do want to, I mean, if you do want to actually productize it earlier on, I would say definitely find your product market fit, find content that resonates, because if you don't have content that resonates, you don't have a good product, no one's going to want to pay for it. But then you have to figure out and be purposeful about the, the problem that you're solving. So if you're actually selling a gated service to something, somebody, so say you're maybe selling course or you're gating off exclusive content. Like any sales, like any any sales strategy ever, you have to figure out the problem that you're solving for the audience that you're trying to reach. So if somebody is going to buy your product, like what value are they going to get out of it? What's the problem that they're trying to solve? And how are you able to actually serve them best? And when you answer all those questions, that's when you can actually put a price tag on gating your knowledge as opposed to just selling access to your audience. So that's probably the most important thing. It's like sales 101, to be quite honest. So learn how to sell, learn how to market. There's zero difference when you're when you're doing it for yourself. And 
like anything, if you want to figure out what's going to be the most effective way to close revenue, you have to A-B test. You have to A-B test everything until you're blue in the face. Mm -hmm. So you have to, if you're trying to, again, let's take the example of you have an audience and you're trying to sell, for example, maybe a paid version of your podcast. So maybe once a month you put out a free podcast, but like three times a month you have a paywall and it's so many dollars per month and people have to pay to get through the paywall to listen to your content. So you have to test different offers, different prices, different phrasing in the actual landing page that people have to go through to get to pay to actually get into, you know, your your paywalled content. You have to keep testing things. And this is, again, like sales marketing 101. And, you know, we can go through the whole gamut of sales and marketing strategy, but that's a very long conversation. But learn sales and marketing and test and test and iterate and test. And there's really no magic bullet for it. It's quite unsexy when you actually break it down. But that's that's really how you make money off a personal brand. Yeah, yeah. And what is your purpose? This is a big question, so we can take time mm. to think about it. <laughs> but what do you think your purpose in life is? Hmm. So I've always loved teaching. And I think that's what has prompted me. I think that was like a deep-rooted passion that got me to want to create I think mm -hmm. that there's selfish reasons why I like to create. I mean, you're building an audience, you're getting popular. So cool. That's awesome. You can monetize it and you see what people, you know, look at look at YouTube creators and how much money they make and it's wild. But like deep, deep down, I love teaching people. I love working with people that are trying to learn and trying to improve themselves. And I also think that that's why the type of content I produce is highly educational. And it's like, not like I'm clowning around because I know that there's types of content you can put out that can grow an audience much quicker. I'm very well aware. If you look at the biggest YouTubers, they are not business podcasts. Okay? Right. Like, let's be very candid. But I love seeing somebody enter my universe or chat with me one day and then I see them progress and and they upskill and they become like better human beings. And I just absolutely love helping somebody achieve what they want to achieve. It is like, it's the most rewarding feeling in the world. I don't know when I realized that this is something I wanted to do, like to build a personal brand against that thought. But I mean, I've liked mentoring and teaching people ever since I could remember. I mean, one of my first jobs ever, ever when I was like very, very young was coaching tennis. And mm -hmm. I loved coaching people and I loved, and I was coaching like six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, like how to play tennis. And it was like the most rewarding thing in the world. And I guess that sort of progressed to the content I put out. I mean, it's sometimes it's the detriment because I'll take calls from people that ask for advice when I probably don't have time to take the call, but I always do. And I worked with several mm -hmm. incubators as like a, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur in residence. Like I love that shit. I really, really, and I, I get super excited when somebody asks me for help and they actually do what I'm mentioning they should try and do or, or they sort of action against my advice and I see them get from, you know, where they're at now to, to they really progress and they, and you see that there's like tangible benefits to some of the stuff that you've taught over to them. Yeah. And I, I believe that because I believe that I feel that way because I don't believe that life has to be difficult. And there's been many people that have sort of helped and supported me, not in like traditional mentorship capacities, but just being around good people that want to see you win and working with people that want to see you win, like knowledge exchange. I really do believe that knowledge exchange can help people live much better lives. And yeah. I feel like there's not enough of it. And a lot of it is gated. And a lot of people are so worried about, I don't know, 
giving over their secrets or, you know, whatever. They're trying to monetize everything. And okay, fine. You want to make money off what you've learned. That's okay. But I still do believe that there has to be more knowledge exchange and free information out there to just generally help people basically compete because the world's tough and life's difficult. And I feel like traditional education, educational institutions let people down and they don't yeah. teach people the things they actually need to know. So if I can, you know, I'm not ever going to compare myself to like the level of impact that some great teachers and some great, you know, business minds and and even like some educational institutions, I'll never, never say never. But right now I'm not having the impact that I can't reach a million people. But if I can at least help, you know, five, six entrepreneurs at a time, that's awesome. I absolutely love that. And that actually, that's what sort of sets my content strategy. That's what sets my life vision. Like when I... So right now I'm building a company, I'm building the personal brand. I hope the company is successful. I hope the company is acquired. But like what I actually want to do and what I've said publicly before is I want to, yeah, angel invest and everybody says that, but like I like working with the entrepreneurs. So I'd work with entrepreneurs in categories and industries that I understand and I'd invest in companies that I actually understand because there's like memes about how VCs are so useless and they're so out of touch. And being an operator and being a successful operator than having capital that allows me to invest in companies, I love that because then I can actually be valuable. And I think that this is a the traditional startup model was broken. VCs with no operational experience are broken. Spreadsheet VCs, horrible. And what you're seeing now is more firms, private equity and venture capital, the people that originally just managed with spreadsheets and just had the money, now they're hiring operational partners that have true experience because that's how you serve entrepreneurs best. That's how you serve like innovators best. So that's something that I want to take on. I mean, it like, falls right in line with like what I want to do. So if I have a little bit of capital I can deploy and invest in some startups or even in private equity plays where it's like less, less risky and you're just investing in, in proven businesses. The point is I like to invest in businesses where I have some expertise so I can truly add value value, truly teach that founder, CEO, entrepreneur, and help them level up. And I think that actually ends up being like financially lucrative as well, because then you are helping companies that you can actually, you're investing in companies where you can actually help and teach and upskill the people that are, are part of those companies. So that's very long-winded answer. Yeah, but no, but I loved it. Yeah. No, that gives me so much more insight into your why, because you are so passionate and you gave me even a little masterclass, like 15 minute masterclass during the creator's dinner. And I was just so grateful for someone who's so new to this space. And even you sent me materials. I was like, that's so kind of him. And it's so Canadian of you, Scott. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. But I think it's, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing because the democratization of this kind of information is so important. You're able to help people, especially with social mobility. Like you were talking about certain institutions. Mm -hmm. Like now that there's so much information available, you can go out there and get it. And people like you yeah. are teaching it. And so people can really tap into their gifts and their strengths and learn and grow and contribute to society. And you're a big part of that on the, especially on, you know, the business entrepreneurial side, which is great. We need that. And so I love your mission oriented work. I love what you're doing. Can I add really one caveat? Like yeah. So I think, I think that's something the world needs more of is we didn't talk about imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome is it's a big thing for me because mm -hmm. I have so much of it and having imposter syndrome, which I, I massively do have all the time. It's that introverted personality. Mm. It's made me 
make sure that 110% of everything that I put out into the world is quality or to the best of my ability. Kind of like what you're saying with showing up for your podcast and bringing up the best stories and people. Like, I don't want to just half-ass anything because I get so concerned that someone's going to say, oh, this is garbage and, and call me out on some shitty advice. So I really try. And this is also why I think having a little bit of that self-awareness and imposter syndrome is actually a good thing. Because if you don't have that and all you have is ego, what happens is all the bullshit you see in business coaching and business gurus that you see where people actually think the stuff they're teaching is valuable. And it's really just scammy and garbage and outdated. So I like people that are a little bit more reserved so they feel like they have to show up and they don't just spew garbage into the world because there is like an overabundance of garbage and information and advice. So, I mean, the future of entrepreneurship, the future of business, teaching and education, I really do hope is coming from a place where the people that teach are a little bit more self-conscious and, and I, I, maybe this may just be a, a pipe dream, but I feel like that would make the overall entrepreneurial business education climate a lot healthier. And mm-hmm. I think that at least let it start with me, right? So if I'm going to, if I'm ever going to monetize anything, I'm going to be so conscious and critical about what that thing, and this is the reason why probably I haven't done a lot of the stuff that I could have taken on earlier on, because I want to make sure that I don't want to be like, you know, paralysis by analysis, which is another bad thing, but I do want to make sure that anything I put out into the world is at a certain threshold and it has a certain caliber of content and a certain caliber of information. But that's all tying back to my personality. I am just curious, just because you've done so many incredible things and you are very disciplined and you work very hard, that often can lead to burnout and Mm. to not necessarily taking care of yourself. Have you figured out that balance? Do you do things to keep yourself sane? So a couple of thoughts on burnout. I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion. I believe mm-hmm. that when you're working on something that like you actually are excited about, you very rarely succumb to burnout. Like there's been times, and I'm going to put some context around this because it may be quasi controversial, but when I see progress, so I think progress is the thing. And, and if progress aligns with my purpose as a human being, I very rarely get burnt out. So when I'm podcasting and I could do four podcasts in a row that day, and then I could write a newsletter. And if I see the downloads go up and if I see a positive review, and if I see a couple of more subscribers to my newsletter, because that currently aligns with my purpose as a human being, I get more enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the true burnout occurs when you're working hard for things that are either not progressing or not in line with what you want to be doing. I've never heard of an athlete that is training in the gym getting burnt out and they train for hours and hours and hours and they go play a game. Yeah, okay, maybe there's like periods of time after months of training and you're prepping for, I don't know, Stanley Cup, uh, whatever that, I play hockey, so don't, all my references are mostly hockey. But maybe after all that training and you and you play, maybe you take a week off and you relax a little bit. But I think most people that are where their day-to-day is aligned with their purpose, I think that it's very easy to continue to operate at a very high level. And I think that a lot of burnout just comes from, I think it actually comes back to the original point we're talking about where people don't take risk and people don't trust themselves. So people stay in things that are comfortable, comfortable air quotes that they don't actually enjoy doing. And then they get burnt out because the thing they're doing day in, day out is not aligned with their purpose. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
Mr. Beast, he's gone on about burnout on several podcasts and he literally works for like six months, like 14 hour days. And then he'll get tired after six months. But it's not like he's forcing himself to work for those six months, no vacation. I'm making up these numbers, but it's like very similar to that. Um, It's like a wild amount of work daily for long periods of time. And he actually says, I don't recommend anybody do this, but he doesn't get tired and he doesn't get burnout. And when he does, he stops. But Mm -hmm. I think it's because what he does is aligned with his purpose. So it's a hard conversation to have because then a lot of people are like, oh, shit, I'm not actually doing what I like to do. But I actually believe that's the majority of people like on planet Earth. I feel like most people are not actually excited to do what they want to do. I know. So, I, I mean, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think, do you think that it's hard though, just because of market expectations and what the market needs? Like, not everyone can do what they love doing. You're right. Well, I disagree. Is that, or do you have I a feel, different? I disagree that everyone can do what they want to do. I think that the mm-hmm. issue is that there's thoughts and there's this like general view of entrepreneurship, which is hustle and go all in and kill yourself building. And and, and entrepreneurship is a pathway to freedom. And yeah. what is freedom? Because freedom is doing whatever you want to do at any point with no one telling you what to do and not really having to answer to anybody. But entrepreneurship is a path there because I don't think somebody, maybe some people do love what they do so much that they could do a corporate job for 16 hours, but I don't believe that's the case. I think that the majority of people were slotted into something that they're quasi proficient at and they've excelled in their career, but ultimately they have other priorities outside of work, which is totally fine. That's actually very healthy. But mm-hmm. I actually believe that if you do have significant priorities outside of what you're doing and you're like, you're looking for like all those cliche quotes, if you're looking forward to going home or if you're looking forward to the weekend or if you're looking forward to getting away, mm-hmm. I think that that means that, first of all, there's nothing wrong with loving your family and getting away from work. But I also think that that means that you don't really have alignment with what you're doing day in, day out. Because I know people, I know people that have families and I know people that are entrepreneurs that are building things that they absolutely love to do. And maybe they take their foot off the gas so they have balance and they can spend more time with their kids. But they get very excited about building things. And Mm -hmm. there's like, even if they only work 10 to 20 hours a week, they're like wildly excited about doing so. So I'll I'll give you an example. One of my good friends, he just sold his company for now just maybe a couple years ago for for half a billion dollars. And he has two beautiful kids. He's divorced and but really good terms with his ex-wife. And Mm -hmm. he would never have to work ever again. Like, like no one has to work after an exit like that, if you're smart. But he spends tons of time with his family, but in his downtime, he like can't wait to start something new. And he's dabbling in all these different things. We actually started a podcast together. He's investing in companies. He's trying to start new stuff. Like he loves building and he's trying to find that thing. But that goes to show you like he still has that balance with his family, but he's trying to find alignment with with his personality again, which is building something that he actually cares about. So Mm. I think that most people, what I would love to see is a new definition of entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. which is not going all into something, not quitting your job, not basically throwing all caution to the wind and just starting something new, but you start to dabble into building and you start to dabble into trying something that can turn into more of a lifestyle. And when you build something that's more of a lifestyle for yourself in a 
category or an industry or bringing a product that you actually care about to market and you do it yourself, then it's yours, you own it, you control how much you work in it. But then I feel like it will be a, a lot more aligned. And that could mean figuring out how to freelance or figuring out how to like find a technical founder to solve a problem you see in your industry or, your, or with your job. Like there's so many paths to freedom. And I think that the ultimate version of freedom and success is not to just never do anything, but to do something that's in alignment with your purpose. And it will take a lot of soul searching. And there's people that are much better at describing finding alignment than I am. There's like a lot of people that have like studied this immensely, but I think that it's finding that thing dipping a toe in, not disrupting your whole life, putting a few hours in towards searching for what that is and starting to pursue it. And then hopefully moving away from that thing that is misaligned so that your whole life becomes, it just becomes a much better life. That's yeah. truly what I believe. And it's a lot yeah. of work. It's like, it's not easy, but it's like a thing that people should be moving towards as opposed to just thinking, oh, you know, this is my career. Life is stagnant. This is going to be it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love, you described a bit of my story of working at a big law firm, doing this podcast on the side for fun, mm. getting the deal with HubSpot, taking sabbatical, mm. doing what I love every day, excited to wake up, tell stories. It's incredible. I think one thing I will say is that I think it also depends on your value system too, when it comes to what you want out of life. Because even though I love what I'm doing, I still like balance. <laughs> and I think it's because mm -hmm. I love, I'm very close to my family. And I think that a 14 hour day for me podcasting, it would make me think about the one hour I didn't take to see my goddaughter. I FaceTime with her every day or to like spend my hour watching a show with my husband. That's something I'm noticing even when I'm, I'm super driven and care about the work I'm doing. But I think the family part taking time away helps me not get burned out. Cause I think I might be that person that if I'm not living in alignment, I think that's what it is. And I think yeah. part of my alignment is storytelling. It's family. It's working out. It's reading. So it's just figuring out your value system and what's aligned with what you want to do. And some of that for me, I don't know is, I don't think it's work. No, I agree. Sense. So what, what you should, you shouldn't be optimizing for a 14 hour day, but what you should be optimizing for is, okay, say you have two career options, right? I know you're mm -hmm. a lawyer and you're still happy. I'm going to say you're still happy being a lawyer and, and this is not what you're telling me. So if you're your employer listens, like she's good, but like, yeah. say you aren't yeah. happy being a lawyer, right? you aren't happy being a lawyer and you're starting a podcast, but you're like, I don't want to trade like 14 hours of lawyering for 14 hours of podcasting. Makes sense. But there's like yeah. levels to this shit. So you got to be like 14 hours a day lawyering. Okay, fine. So let's find mm -hmm. a way to start it. Cause I love telling stories and I love podcasting, but what if eventually 20 years from now I could podcast for five hours a week and make the same amount of money and I have a, a happy lifestyle. You're not replacing one for the other. You're dipping your toe into entrepreneurship. You're starting to learn what replacing. So I would say like first iteration of entrepreneurship is 14 hours a day lawyer. Eventually it'll be 14 hours a day podcast, but then 14 hours a day podcast. And then you find ways to optimize that. Then you find ways to morph that into a lifestyle business. But you usually will have a better chance and an opportunity to morph something you own into a lifestyle business by hiring out a team, scaling systems, processes, charging more, adding more products on, then you could with billable hours. 
Now there is, because you're a lawyer, there is arguably no ceiling on how much you can charge someone for an hour. But for most people, that's not the case. So if I, mm -hmm. if I am a profession where there is a significant limit on my income and the hours that I have to put in to make that income, I would have more chance of creating something that could be in alignment with not only my professional aspirations, but ultimately allow me to work less for same and or more money. And that's the path that I want people to go on. That's yeah. really like, if you're a graphic designer in a company, okay, graphic designer in a company, you make whatever, I don't know, a hundred, probably less in some cities, but say a hundred thousand, just nice, easy whole number, hundred thousand graphic designer in a company. You start freelancing Upwork, Fiverr, TopTal, graphic designer, freelance. When you make double as much as a freelancer, which you totally can because you're charging just like regular rate and you don't have any, you're charging like full rates for all of your work and you develop a nice book of business and you have like a great funnel and good deal flow and whatnot. Okay. So now you're making double as much as a graphic designer freelance than you were working in a company, which is very, very doable, but you're still doing the same work that you love, but now you're working like probably maybe 10, 25% more. You're like, okay, this kind of sucks. I'm, I'm making twice as much, but I'm working 25% more. This is shit. But then you're like, okay, so how do now I'm a, a solo graphic designer. I'm making all this money on all these different marketplaces. But then mm -hmm. you start to start to hire out and you start to build an organization around you. And then you start to build a lifestyle business. And then you, and then down the line, you hire an operator. And then all of a sudden you literally don't work at all. Or maybe you sell a piece of, maybe you sell a piece of it to a private equity firm that's going to inject some more capital and hire an operator. And you can just negotiate some sort of settlement where you have a percentage and you have a rev share, but ultimately you aren't working at all at all. And if you want to work, you can. If you don't want to work, you don't have to, but you're still making just as much money. That's what I mean about this whole migrate from being stuck in a system to being an entrepreneur to eventually crafting the life that you want that's in alignment. And then you choose. If you want to work, no one's going to say, no, you own a piece of the business. If you don't want to work, fine. But you'll never yeah. get that in a company. So that's what you. That's yeah. the journey you have to go on. I love that. I'm still wrapping my head around it. <laughs> No, listen, because first of all, it seems so simple when you say it, but it's incredibly complex and hard and time consuming and stressful. But know yeah. that there is more light at the end of the tunnel if you build something that you own than if you work for someone. That's mm. all I'm trying to get across. And the options, the options for what you can mold this thing into are endless. You can only mold your job into so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Scott, <laughs> I'm about to go to my journal. <laughs> I feel like I was just an entrepreneurial church. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I hopefully, hopefully it was useful. I don't know if you're just being nice for the podcast, but this is what I'm trying to do for myself. Yeah. So I'm truly trying to do for myself. I'm not yeah. doing this. I'm not doing a podcast so I can like work 20 hours a day. Like there, there, this is like the first version of it. I work a lot now, but I don't yeah. always want to work, but I want to, if I do work and I never want to not, not work. Cause I see what that does to people too. Right. If I do work, I want it to be on stuff that I like and I enjoy and yeah. I want to choose how much I want to do of it. Yeah. Yeah. No. I love that energy. I got to take some more. I have some of that energy, but I don't have it I'm not at that level yet. You have uh, more this, than enough energy. You're good. <laughs> this conversation has been amazing. I always end, if you have any final thoughts, please share. And we're going to drop everything about you Damn, in the show okay. notes too. So What else? No, I think that's enough. Everyone, if they're still here, they're like, listen, just cut it. <laughs> this guy could talk forever. <laughs> we can, if you ever want to do another one, we can do another one. I'll give you one last thought. This is all something I truly do believe in. If you start anything and you are somebody that is okay 
persevering and going through all the bullshit and dealing and learning and iterating and testing and trying and creating feedback loops that allow you to consistently learn from your mistakes. If you start anything and you adopt all those entrepreneurial buzzwords, like I just mentioned, like mm-hmm. eventually that thing will manifest and morph into something successful. I do not believe that if you put 10 years of concerted effort and learning and iterating and trying and testing towards anything that you won't be successful or you'll have some measure of success. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been doing a podcast for four years and it's doing quite well. And I'm not, I didn't start this journey as a podcaster. And I also know people that in four years that have gone twice as far as me, but I do know that that mindset of, of perseverance and grit and determination and all those funny buzzwords mixed with that ability to learn from your mistakes can literally make anyone successful at anything. And I stand by that as a hard and fast rule that I adopt in my life. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.